to two places. We'll be looking at Romans 8 as our sermon text, and then I'll take you to Corinthians 15 for a moment. So while you're getting your Bibles open, let me welcome those who are worshiping uh, via the internet uh, through Technology I don't fully understand, but you can see a live picture of the sermon from Clifton Park Community Church. We're glad that you've tuned in today, and our dear friends who are homebound, may God bless you and keep you and impart to you an Easter joy. Um, this room is just abuzz with God's blessing as his people have gathered, and we trust uh, he is with you and blessing you where you are. Our text on this Easter Sunday is a verse from Romans 8. And you might not think of it as an Easter Sunday text, but that's where we're going to be. We will take a quick peek at uh, Corinthians in a moment. But let me read from God's Word uh, the text for this morning. Romans 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thus we read in God's holy word, may he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. This is Easter Sunday and we're celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He died a brutal death clearly bloody death he was certified dead by a roman soldier with a spear in his hand he was taken off the cross laid in a tomb and they were starting the preparations for burial but they had to leave and when they came back on sunday morning the tomb was empty jesus christ rose from the dead and is alive today it's the defining act of human history It's the defining event on planet Earth. It's what Paul writes about. I mentioned the resurrection chapter. You should know this address. Let's take a look at what Paul says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, just the first few verses, that clearly set forth that what he preached, what Jesus taught, all hangs on the resurrection. We'll get back to Romans in a minute, but... 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul writes, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Thus far we read in God's holy word, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Paul is is waxing eloquently and reporting the resurrection. He's giving statistics. He's giving proofs of it. And it's interesting, in the midst of that, he talks a little bit about himself. Wasn't that interesting? God appeared, Jesus, the risen Savior, appeared even to him. And then he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's right. The person who wrote that and reported that in scripture, St. Paul the Apostle, was once Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember that figure in the Bible? In the book of Acts, you can read about him at the very end of chapter 7 and in chapter 8, chapter 9. At first it's Peter, but then this man called Saul of Tarsus enters the scene. Eventually he becomes Paul and he kind of takes over. He's a very significant person and he writes this account for us. How did Saul of Tarsus, who once persecuted the church of God, what do we mean by that? Paul put followers of Jesus to death with permission and with blessing. How does this this Jewish scholar who's zealous for killing Christians become the Apostle Paul who can report the resurrection? Well, he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was still Saul of Tarsus. And the power of the resurrected Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit of God changed him in that moment. The resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ has power to change sinners into saints, as we say. And every Christian is a saint. Paul even expresses it here in verse 10 before we move away from the passage. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. God could give Paul saving grace because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That power at work to change and transform that sinner. And say, Saul, you're now going to work for me. It's amazing. And that's really, in a nutshell, what I want to talk to you about is that the resurrected Jesus has power in his gospel by his spirit to bring about real transformation. Real. I'm not some infomercial with fine print or a limited offer. This is truth. Truth that for centuries has seen that power at work. From that small band in the upper room to Christians filling every continent in the world praising Jesus for having changed their life. And if you've been changed by that gospel, there's great joy in this. And if you haven't yet been changed by that gospel, there's great hope for you. Let's go back to Romans 8 and verse 11. I didn't mean to fool you by just picking one verse that it would be a shorter sermon. It'll be a regular sermon. So we have three points, and if you're here, I've passed out a small outline. You'll see that I have three points. The three points arise from this verse. Here in Romans, when Paul, the same Paul that just reported in in Corinthians, the same Paul gives us this descriptor about this process of how transformation takes place. And in this verse, and in its context, he talks about the past, the present, and the future. So I thought that would be helpful as three headings. We can talk about past transformation, how Paul was born again, 
We can talk about future transformation, how he has a hope of being raised himself from the dead and having a body as he goes into heaven. And then also the present transformation power. So we're going to talk about those three that come from here in Romans and illustrate it with the resurrection of Jesus. That's simple, is it not? Let's talk about past transformation. And for many of you who are already disciples of Jesus, it is a past thing. For some, it's not yet happened. It's a transformation unto new life. When we read Romans 8, verse 11, it begins with this condition. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now that if there, there's several ifs in this passage. It's not saying, boy, I don't know. There could be some doubt. No. That is a presumptive type of if. I forget the other technical grammatical term for it. But it's, it's saying, of course the reality is true. It's pausing for rhetorical and literary purposes to remind the reader that I know this is true for you. If the Spirit does in fact dwell in you. Well, who is he writing to? Look at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he describes what that's like to be in Christ Jesus. And when he gets to verse 9, 10, and 11, he begins speaking in the second person plural. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If Christ is in you, verse 10, that's the same presumptive if. I know it to be true. So realize, since it is true, the if-then clause is true for you. So he's writing to believers, those who have been born again, those who by the spirit of life have been set free. Earlier in Romans 8, we have a few extra verses describing that. Uh, uh, Romans 8, verse 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, we're not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments because no one could ever do that. He said, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, that's talking about the cross, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's writing to Christians who've been born again by the Spirit of God, who don't walk any longer the way they once walked or lived, but now they have the Spirit. They've been born again. They are something new. That's what Paul understands, and that's what God's Word declares to us. There is power to bring about new life and the new birth, where it once was only men dead in their trespasses and sins. There was a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus one night. He was a teacher in Israel, should have been a smart guy, but he didn't have the answers he really wanted. So he comes to talk to Jesus, but he comes at night so nobody will see. So, and Jesus speaks with him. And in John chapter 3, you have that famous exchange. What was the missing part? He, he was religious, he had the law, he was keeping the law, he didn't feel right with God. Jesus answered him in John chapter 3, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born, hear hear Jesus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. You're not a Christian unless you've been born again by the Spirit of God. That's what the Bible teaches. And here in Romans 8, there's a connection between the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and bringing new life to us. If this Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. It primarily talks about the future, but there's a present reality. The Spirit now indwells you. And by the way, it's the same spirit in every Christian. That case was made in verse 9, which we didn't fully read. Here in the context, he says, you, directly addressing Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone, says the Bible, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It's the same spirit in every Christian. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, it doesn't mean you need to wait for a second blessing. You're not a Christian. That's what the verse tells you. Romans 8, verse 9. This is the larger argument of the whole chapter, really. The Christian life is a life lived in the Spirit, not in the flesh. You see, please hear me. Christianity isn't about just being religious and knowing what to wear on Easter Sunday and getting a big Bible and coming and going and keeping the rules. Christianity is about being touched by the Spirit of God, the power of God, and living in a right relationship with Him by God's grace. We repent and believe and we're transformed by Jesus. And the same spirit, the spirit of Jesus, indwells every believer. Notice this word dwells in you. That's a really important word. You might need to underline that and think about it. And I'm going to turn up the heat this morning. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You see, he's talking to Christians and a Christian does have the spirit. The spirit is dwelling in you. But from your perspective, if you have a question, am I a Christian? Is the spirit dwelling in me? You need to figure that out. You see, the key imagery here is that dwelling. Uh, It means to, to, to set up house. Some of you might have a visitor for Easter, right? Somebody comes by and they eat your food and get some candy and they go home. Or maybe they stay overnight. But they don't stay permanently. They visit. Well, you know what? There's a problem among professing people who think they're Christians in that they've only visited the Holy Spirit. See you later. Sunday's over. Goodbye. He doesn't dwell with them. And that's an issue. You can't be a Sunday-only Christian and visit uh, on visitation day. Does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? I said I wanted to turn up the heat, and I'm going to pause to bring in one other scripture. I'm not going to read it. I'll summarize it. Jesus taught a parable. It's found in Matthew 25. You can look it up later. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. We could rename it and say the parable of the ten women attendants at the wedding. That might make a little more sense. It comes in Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse, before Jesus goes away. Very serious stuff, talking about the end times, talking about serious matters for Christians to know. And he tells his disciples that parable. 
What is the parable? There are these 10 women attendants waiting for the bridegroom to, attend, to come, the groom to come to the big festival. In the ancient world, that's how it was done. So they're waiting. They didn't know what time he was coming, but they're waiting. And there were five foolish and five wise. We're told that in the parable. Well, what's the difference between the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins? You may remember the parable. They had lamps because it gets dark, and in order to have light, you needed your lamp, and their lamps had oil. The five foolish virgins had lamps without any oil. So when they hear the bridegrooms approaching, the five that don't have oil, they skedaddle to go get some, and they miss the boat. The five wise virgins who had their lamps and their oil were entering into the wedding festival. The parable teaches that only five were saved. It's teaching us that you can be ready and expectant, but miss the boat. So this is where I turn up the heat for you. Let's cut to the point. If five out of the ten were saved in this parable, which are you? And before you jump to a conclusion, let me point out, as Dr. John Gerstner did long ago when he taught this passage, he said, notice that all ten had been invited. All ten belonged to the gathered group of waiters, so we might say belong to the visible church. He said all ten professed to belong, belong to the coming groom, that they had some point of contact. Yeah, I, I'm waiting for him. And they believed that he was coming, so they were there waiting that night. And notice that even all ten fell asleep, but only five were saved. Which are you? The only difference the parable points out is the lamps with oil. And we're not going to allegorize or dwell longer on the parable, but I just submit to you that Jesus is making a point that unless the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, unless you're genuinely in a relationship with Jesus, you will not be saved. Whether you're waiting, whether you're gathered, whether you're excited. The parable of the ten virgins, it's rather unsettling. But Jesus leaves it with his disciples so that they would seek to be ready to meet him. So the first point here is that the spirit of God brings new life. There's new birth and he makes his dwelling in those. And that's how you know you're a Christian. And for most of us, that's past. And it's a delightful part of our testimony. If it's not clear to you, make sure today. But this text, Romans 8, verse 11, also talks about a future transformation. It talks about eternal life, does it not? That seems to be the primary point of the verse. After the the premise, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there's the premise, here comes the consequence. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's going to be life For your mortal bodies, the resurrection of the body. Not going to get too technical on you here. You all have a body, and it is mortal. Your body will taste death. In fact, that's the point that's made in verse 10 in the context. Some of you probably looked at the context as I'm preaching. You want to check these things out. 9, 10, 11 do hang together. It's the same paragraph. In verse 10, Paul had said this. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And that should be spirit with a small s, talking about our spirit, body, spirit. He's talking about us. If the spirit of Christ who lives in you dwells in you. So verse 10 is making a point. Christians are alive spiritually, but we're still in a mortal body. What does it mean to be in a mortal body? Is there a... Is there a mortician in the house? No, there's a doctor. A mortal body, it just means you're liable to death and death is coming to you. It's inevitable. I had a better, trans, a better definition somewhere, but I can't find it. Um, it, it. It means that we are alive unto God, but our body will taste death. The sting of death is gone for the Christian. We don't fear death, but that's the consequence. Our body still has to go through that death in order to be changed at the resurrection to an immortal body like Jesus. But the verse is written to Christians in this world saying that power will work on that future day. There is future transformation for you and eternal life waits. Even though now your body seems to be breaking down, getting old, and many bodies die. Life in this world can kind of feel like the Suez Canal scene this past couple of weeks. You know, the ginormous freighter, you know, one of the biggest ever. The company's name was Evergreen. That particular freighter was called Evergiven. Well, it gave everybody a given headache. Uh, as it blocked the Suez Canal and hundreds of freighters stopped and uh, it got blown and the bow of the ship was jammed into one sandy bank and the tail end jammed into another And how many people saw that picture near the bow of the ship? There was an earth digger, pretty big by our standards, but dwarfed by this giant ship, trying to scoop away the sand. It it just, there seems something almost futile about it. Instead of showing what effort was being made, it kind of communicated powerlessness. That boat seems so stuck. We can feel that way in our bodies, in this broken world. The Bible understands that. The Bible understands that we are but vessels of clay and we have a treasure inside. And we long to be clothed with that immortal body. And so Romans 8.11 tells us that there is future life for you. Our future transformation is guaranteed. Do you see the guarantee in this verse? Um, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, it's referring to God the Father using the Holy Spirit. It says, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your bodies. It's putting God on notice. God the Father will do this for you. That's what the scripture is saying. That's what God is telling us. Your future transformation at your resurrection is guaranteed. We will rise bodily like our Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. You see, the main point of this verse is not as some, you may have been in some circles where they use this verse to talk about faith healing for the here and now. It's not talking about healing in the here and now. It's contrasting our bodies, which are mortal, which means they will perish, and the future resurrection of that body. And the parallel is with Jesus. Jesus didn't succumb because he didn't have a faith healing moment. He died and was raised to life. And that's the pattern that Christians too will go through. We will die unless the Lord returns. 
and then we will be changed. Our future transformation is guaranteed. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, if the head of the body rise, the members of the body will follow after. For this mystical body, the church, was appointed to be conformed to their head. There's that connection. The body of Christ will go through death and resurrection. Guaranteed by God. He will do it, says the ESV. The King James Version used the translation shall. And sometimes I get fuzzy. The difference between will and shall. You can correct me afterwards. I just know that it's certain. It's certain and God wrote it down. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians to encourage them. He doesn't want Christians to grieve as those who have no hope. We have this hope. God's power will work for us. He will do the exact same thing in us. And and why is that important? I had one more point here. Why is that important, this future transformation? Our physical resurrection is required for our salvation. Our physical resurrection is required for our salvation. Maybe you've never thought about that. It's drawn from theology. When you see the consequences of sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, live and well, in bodies, in flesh, but they fall into sin. And the curse falls not only upon their spirit, which dies, and they need to be born again, but it also falls upon their bodies, which decay over time and begin to die. Death is a result of sin. Death wasn't in the creation when God created and said it was good. Death enters by the sin of man. And our bodies become mortal because of the fall into sin. So if Christ is going to bring about the end of the curse of sin, if he's going to put sin away and create the new heavens and the new earth and put redeemed believers in heaven and in the new earth, the physical needs to be restored. Bodies need to be freed from the marks of sin. We get a glorious heavenly body. John R. W. Stott said, Resurrection includes transformation. The raising and changing of our body into a new and glorious vehicle for our personality and its liberation from all frailty, all disease, all pain, all decay, and all death. God's salvation will be complete when our bodies and spirit are present in heaven above. The great resurrection day. Well, this verse not only talks about the past power to save us and the future power to see us raised from the dead, our text also speaks of a present transforming power. Not just at our conversion and not simply at our passing into glory, but for today, for these days. For the season of COVID, for 2021, and all that we hope it brings, there is transforming power for those who believe. It's God's grace for this present life. And this is often overlooked when we talk about the resurrection. Verse 11 seems to imply that there's continuity between what God did in the past, what he's going to do in the future, right? If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, that means you've been born again. You're going to be raised from the dead. What happens in the middle? If God's going on record that say, I I brought you new life by the Spirit of God. You're born again. You're going to get a new heavenly body. What happens through the Christian life? The keeping power of that same Spirit. 
The keeping power of that same spirit. Grace for daily living. The resurrection spirit is working in us now. You don't have to turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, but you'll remember the verse I read from Paul's testimony. As he finished talking about the fact of the resurrection, he talked about himself and said this at the beginning of verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He was changed and born again. He was no longer Saul of Tarsus. He was Paul the Apostle. He was changed. And he is in the present tense. I am a child of grace today. And that grace was not in vain. From the past to the future, the whole present has the help and ministry of that same powerful spirit of resurrection It is present transformation power, and it will affect all of our relationships. If the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, in the present, you have a new relationship with God. You call him Father. You have a prayer life. If the Spirit of God is in you in the present day, you have power to have relationships on the horizontal, to love others, to turn the other cheek, to do all those things that Christ commanded. The Sermon on the Mount is not out of reach if you're made new. I don't know if I can be meek. I don't know if I can hunger and thirst for righteousness. I got a lot of things I want. If we see the description of the Christian life and wonder, how can I ever get there? Remember the power of the resurrection. It changed you from dead to alive. It can animate you and fill your spirit to do all that Christ commands you. Get this. You, listen, you can now say no to sin. You are free. Do you remember what Paul wrote at the beginning of Romans 8? He said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. That's now. That's today. You're free at last. You don't have to sin. We do sin. God is still working on us. He's working on us graciously, patiently. But there's power at work in us today. One of the favorite verses my mom would send to me. She'd write it at the bottom of letters when I was in college or birthday cards. Philippians 1.6. If you've come to Clifton Park, you've heard it before. Philippians 1.6. I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That past transforming power aiming at the future is faithful in the present. And that's where we live. It's Easter Sunday, April 4th, 2021. This is good news for today, not just for your future. Some of you aren't thinking about death and heaven right now. Although I warn you, no one knows the day or hour of their death. But right now we have this present power, grace for living by this same spirit, the power of God. It changes our relationships. I said it, our relationship to God, it changes your relationship with the Bible. That's one of the reasons I knew for sure I'd been saved. I'd been reading the Bible with my friends, underlining things that they were underlining, trying hard to be a Christian. But it wasn't until I was born again. And my eyes went to that same page in my old living Bible, Romans 8.28, which I underlined with the group. I don't know why. I read it and tears come from my eyes. 
I read with understanding. God's word speaks to me. There's present power to know the Lord, to hear his word. And it happens really quickly. Look of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, his testimony. People were saying, you sure, Lord, we should baptize this guy? You sure I should talk to him? He was changed. And scales fell from his eyes. And he understand God's word. So here's a footnote. If you're listening to the preaching today, and it's a struggle for you to make sense of the Bible, it doesn't seem like God is speaking to you through it. Perhaps you're not yet born again. Because when that spirit comes and you are born again, there is a change in your relationship and your ability to perceive the spirit illuminates the word of God and confirms it to you. There's change in your relationships with other people. I remember the day my mother asked me why I was speaking so differently. I said, what do you mean? Well, you haven't said anything mean to me or your sister. What's going on? Mom, I'm, I'm a Christian now. It's real. There's a present transformation when there's oil in your lamp. More than just the externals, there's an internal reality. And there is finally a real assurance that you can please God. I didn't comment on Romans 8, verse 8. It's one of those verses here that is very important. It said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But we're talking about Christians who are in the spirit. We're not in the flesh. If we've made that transition, we can take the implication of verse 8. We're no longer in the flesh, we're in the spirit. I can please God. I can know his favor and receive his blessing. That's good news for the present. So my closing words are these. Three words, and you'll see, I've already put them on the sermon outline. I want to remind you of rescuing power, resurrecting power, and right now power. There's that rescuing power. You can be born again. You can be saved. Even if you've been persecuting Christians, you can be born again because the same power that raised a dead Jewish man from Nazareth, from the grave, the Lord Jesus. Life pulsed in that body as the Spirit came and did what only the Spirit can do. The same can happen for you. No sinner is too far off that God cannot save. Jesus was surrounded by people who had been transformed by that power. Rescuing power is real. Let the lost hear and believe. Resurrecting power is real. Let the weary hear and believe. Weary? Done with COVID? You know, even if you get your vaccine, they're saying you got to wear a mask, you got to jump through this hoop. When will it all end? If you're weary of life in this world, remember that the gospel gives you hope of the world to come, a transformation that will happen. God guarantees it. I remember how 1 Corinthians 15 ends, near the end, Paul writes with this great language. He, t- he says, I tell you this, brothers, you can just see him getting excited. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all 
be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We'll be done with vaccines. We'll be done with masks. We'll be done with pain and tears and death. That day is coming. And it's based on what Christ accomplished that first Easter Sunday. Resurrection power is real, but so is right now power. I'm trying to phrase it as simple and as clear as I can. We're not just talking about your salvation or your glorification. We're talking about your sanctification. There's power now to live the Christian life. To be close to God. To please God. And to feel the smile of His pleasure. It's the same Holy Spirit. Paul said to the Galatians, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That should be your Easter resolution. Not simply to look for that last day resurrection, but to look for help for the next step. There's no condemnation. There is a lot of grace. And there's a future and a hope for those in whom this spirit dwells. Because Jesus died, rose, ascended, and sent that spirit into the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a glorious gospel. We thank you for the wonderful good news that you give us of life in Christ by the spirit he has given us, by the power of our Father working all these things. Lord, may today be a day of salvation for some who hear and finally are brought to believe. Father, change hearts, open eyes. Bring many into the light and love of the presence of Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you are present where two or three are gathered. We cannot wait to see you face to face. Oh Lord, come quickly. And while you tarry, give us strength for the living of these days. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.